Welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the show where we talk about how our institutions are failing us and how we can fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And today we have a very special guest, Amanda Hollis Brusky, who's the Associate Professor of Politics and the Chair of the Department at Pomona College. And she's written two really important books about the conservative legal movement Ideas with Consequences The Federalist Society and the Conservative Counter Revolution, and with Josh Wilson, more recently, Separate but Faithful The Christian Rights Radical Struggle to Transform Law and Legal Culture. So, Welcome, Amanda. It's really great to have you. Also, Amanda and I went to graduate school together at Berkeley many years ago. Thank you for having me, Lee and Julia. I'm excited to be here. Well, we are excited to have you because a lot of people are talking about the Supreme Court now that Justice Stephen Breyer has announced his retirement and we are in the throes of wondering who Joe Biden will nominate and what the politics of that nomination fight will look like, although we're already starting to get some inklings of that. So we'll talk about that. But before we get into the news, I I, want to get your special expertise on something that you've been thinking about and writing about for a long time, which is the sort of trajectory of the conservative legal movement and the conservative court. So I want to kind of start by asking you, how much has the court changed with the confirmations of Brett Kavanaugh and particularly Amy Coney Barrett? What are some of the ways in which these changes have been less obvious than some people have, have appreciated? Yeah, thank you, Lee. That's a great question. And so I think it's important to note that at least since the early 1980s, but really accelerating during the George W. Bush administration, the Supreme Court is undergoing a marked turn to the right. So in my book, in Stephen Tallis's book, and others, we refer to this as the conservative counter-revolution. And so the conservative turn on the court has been a long time in the making, and I write about this specifically in Ideas with Consequences. But you, your question is about Trump's nominees to the court, and it's pretty striking when we step back and think that a single-term president was able to nominate one-third of the Supreme Court of the United States. So not only Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, but Neil Gorsuch as well. And we can think back to the obstructionism of, of Mitch McConnell, during the Obama administration and his refusal to consider Obama's nominee for the seat that was left vacant by the death of Antonin Scalia. So these three nominees have done more than just solidify the conservative counter-revolution. They are positioned to extend that counter-revolution into new territory. Yes, Amy Coney Barrett replaced the, the progressive icon, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. By some metrics, some political scientists would assess that as the single largest ideological swing in a seat on the Supreme Court ever, historically. And that includes Clarence Thomas replacing uh, Thurgood Marshall. So the ideological swing in that one seat is of a, of a large magnitude. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh replacing Justice Anthony Kennedy. Many of us remember that Kennedy for a long time was a swing justice on the Supreme Court. Yes, he voted with the conservatives on issues considering regulation and federalism and states' rights, 
He was rather pro-business in his voting record, but he also reliably sided with the liberals on key culture wars issues such as abortion and gay rights. And Neil Gorsuch taking a seat that Democrats claimed as their own is also sort of a kind of stealthy, strong conservative. Some have noted that Gorsuch has issued a surprising ruling. For example, he voted with the liberals to incorporate LGBTQ protections against employment discrimination in a Title VII case in Bostock a few terms ago. But Gorsuch has a a really kind of stealthy conservatism that lies in his skepticism of the entire administrative state. And so when we think about kind of the status quo in the post-New Deal era, Gorsuch is really interested in disempowering the administrative state and administrative agencies and in favor of empowering judges, including judges on the Supreme Court, to really second guess the rulings coming out of administrative agencies. So that has the potential to affect environmental regulation, business regulation, health and safety regulation that we've sort of become accustomed to since the mid 20th century. So those are some of the ways that are maybe less obvious that Trump's appointees really stand positioned to extend the conservative counter-revolution in ways that dismantle the, the administrative state, right, that are clearly going to push the conservative preferences and the culture wars to an extreme. We're thinking here about abortion. Supreme Court just announced that it was going to take up a case on affirmative action. Um, and then when we think of Kavanaugh, we can think of a very, very pro-executive kind of muscular imperial presidency view that, you know, under certain conditions and under Republican administration could sort of further erode the separation of powers in favor of a of a muscular presidency. So I want to jump ahead a little bit because I'm the the legitimacy person, I think, um, or at least that's the reputation I've tried to cultivate. That's something that I think was, you know, it was a topic of conversation prior to the Trump court, but has become all the more important as I think the potential for the court to make decisions that are at odds with the kind of majority of public opinion is that is that possibility seems more likely. Um, and I'm curious what your sense is of kind of what the court's legitimacy will be going forward. Will the court make a series of, of these kinds of counter-majoritarian decisions? Will they care? I remember this was, I think this was pre-Trump, even people talked about John Roberts really caring about the reputation of the court. Does that still seem to be true? What is your sense of the legitimacy picture with the Supreme Court? Yeah, this is something that I talk to my students about a lot, and particularly now. Now, Julia, you mentioned John Roberts, and I think that's a really interesting place to start. Roberts, in his confirmation hearing, talked about judges as umpires, right? We just call balls and strikes. We don't get involved in politics. We're neutral arbiters of the law. We call it as we see it. And while we political scientists would critique that view, there's a way in which that is exceptionally important for the public to believe, right? We know from political science research that when the public views the court as nothing more than partisans in robes, as extensions of a political party, they lose faith in the court and the legitimacy of the court as an institution suffers. So one thing that I talk to my students about, we go back to Hamilton's essay in Federalist 78, right? The Supreme Court will always be the least dangerous branch, 
so long as it remains truly independent of the political branches and truly independent of partisan politics. The only tool that the court has to persuade people that its decisions are legitimate and well-reasoned is its power of persuasion, right? It has to appear, at least maintain the trappings of independence, of neutrality, of, as Roberts would say, of being an umpire, right? Calling balls and strikes. And I think what's happened, it didn't start with the Trump appointees, as you mentioned, Julia, but it's kind of come to a, a real tipping point is that beginning really with Mitch McConnell and his obstructionism of Obama's nominee to fill Scalia's seat, when McConnell came out and said, we're not going to even entertain the possibility that President Obama will get to fill this seat. We will wait until the next election and let the people decide. The idea that the people would in some sense get to weigh in as a referendum on which political party would appoint the Supreme Court justice reveals something important, which is that we the people now see these justices by and large as an extension of the political party that appoints them. And when people start to believe that, they question the legitimacy, they question the neutrality of these judges and their decisions. So one of the interesting developments, I think of the last few years, and Julia, you hinted at this in your question, is a renewed interest in Supreme Court reform. In many ways, this is a moment that feels a lot like 1937, when the, the New Deal court, the conservative justices consistently struck down FDR's New Deal legislation, right, bill after bill after bill, until FDR finally announced that he was going to ask Congress to add new seats to the Supreme Court. And he was going to put a certain kind of judge on the court, a judge that would respect the separation of powers, a judge that would let Congress and the president regulate in the best interests of the people, a judge that would actually go along with the majority will. Now, that court packing plan failed, but as history turns out, one justice, Owen Roberts, flip-flops. He goes from voting with the conservatives to then voting with the liberals and upholding FDR's New Deal legislation. So the need for court reform, the kind of urgency behind it sort of subsides as you get a court that for at least 50 years is deferential to the political branches, doesn't, doesn't move the law too far too fast, doesn't really get involved in economic matters, lets Congress regulate rather broadly and rather widely. Now, the story of the conservative counter-revolution in many ways can be understood as a response to that crisis and the fact that you had a court that let Congress expand its own powers, that it, you had a court that let Congress expand the regulatory state into new areas of the economy, but also new areas of social life. The idea that we passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, using Congress's power to regulate commerce among the several states. But the Supreme Court said that was okay. Conservative counter-revolution comes about as a reaction to that court and says, we want justices who are going to take a more limited view of Congress's regulatory power, that's going to take a more limited view of the administrative state, that's going to take a more limited view of the ability of the federal government to intervene in social and economic life in the way that it did for at least 50 years reliably between the New Deal revolution in the mid-1990s. And when you have a court 
that is going against the majority will, Julia, as you mentioned, and is striking down acts of Congress, is striking down the Voting Rights Act, is deregulating campaign finance and striking and gutting those regulations, the people start to question what is going on here. And if they believe that the six justices on the Supreme Court are merely an extension of the Republican Party's agenda, then they will see that those decisions are illegitimate. And in many ways, John Roberts has lost control of the court. Right? There are now six Republican appointees. You know, Roberts is one of them, but they have a majority without him. So even if you believe that Roberts is still deeply invested in maintaining that image of the court as an empire, Roberts has sort of lost control. So when we think about losing control, um, it feels like a lot of stuff in, in our politics now is careening out of control. So now we're gonna, the court's going to decide on abortion, which I think is going to be extremely, well, it's obviously going to be extremely controversial. Seems like they're probably going to strike down Roe v. Wade, although, unless you have maybe, maybe some other insights. There's you know, controversial gun rights cases, a bunch of other cases. I mean, at what point does the court lose legitimacy? And when the court loses legitimacy, then what happens? Is it there's a huge political backlash? Is it people stop obeying the or administrations, stop enforcing the, the rulings of the court? I mean, what happens? Where do, where do we careen towards? Yeah, that's a great question. And in many ways, because we don't really have the counterfactual from 1937, right, what would have happened had that one justice, Owen Roberts, not flip-flopped? and started voting to uphold FDR's New Deal legislation? What if the court just kept striking it down and stood as a barrier to change and to economic recovery? What we know from Hamilton's Federalist 78 and what we know from history is that the Supreme Court can't enforce its own rulings. It has, as Hamilton notes, neither the power of the sword, so it doesn't have access to the military, that's the executive branch, to enforce its rulings, nor the power of the purse, so it doesn't have access to the power of taxation, right, to wield as a carrot or a stick to convince people to follow its rulings. It has merely the power of judgment. And that's where legitimacy comes in. So I think under a different president, in the moment following Amy Coney Barrett's rushed confirmation to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, after early voting had already started in the 2020 election, had we a different president who was not the institutionalist that Joe Biden is, that maybe we see more than just a court reform commission, which I submitted written testimony to, that came out with a several hundred page report, in essence, outlining the pros and cons of every possible reform to the court, but cautioning against really any of them at this moment. We have Joseph R. Biden, and what we have in this timeline is a commission report that has very little urgency behind it. And so, Lee, your question is, we maintain the status quo until the Supreme Court guts abortion rights, expands the Second Amendment to a degree where states are no longer even able to require permits for carrying weapons outside of the home, right? dismantles the EPA's authority, resurrects old doctrines from the 1930s, the non-delegation doctrine, 
right, being one of them, to remove the ability of the administrative state to regulate businesses. I don't know what happens in that situation, but I imagine it involves a lot of mobilization, uh, protest, and maybe if there's still a Democrat in power and they keep a hold on the on Congress, then then maybe you get change and you get some of these reforms that folks have been shouting for and clamoring for since at least November of 2020. So what are, are the reforms, since, since we're on the topic of reforms, I just want to jump in briefly to keep us there. What are the reforms that you recommended? What, what, do you, what do you think the court ought to do? There's a menu of options. And I think what I advocated was we can't continue with the status quo. And in part because the status quo just heightens and puts the pressure on judicial confirmations, which further politicizes the Supreme Court, which further erodes and degrades people's belief in the legitimacy um, of the federal judiciary. So the status quo to me is is not an option, um, particularly because as we know, the courts follow partisan politics. And so as partisan politics gets more and more dysfunctional and contested, these seats become prizes to be one. Some of the reforms that I think are most intriguing would regularize Supreme Court appointments. So term limits, of course, we know Article 3 guarantees that judges appointed to the federal judiciary shall serve for life or good behavior. But there are some intriguing proposals for statutory term limits, uh, one of which was actually co-authored back in the day by Stephen Calabresi, who was a co-founder of the Conservative Federalist Society that I read about in Ideas with Consequences. And this would be a plan that, let's say you want to add three to six new seats on the Supreme Court, but Congress would create those seats as term-limited seats. And what you would do is elevate a circuit court judge, right, a court of appeals judge, for a fixed term. You could do 12 to 18 years. And then once they were done with that fixed term, they could rotate back down to the Court of Appeals. And so as justices retire from the current court, Congress could then term limit those seats as well. So you'd introduce something of a regularized appointment process. Under some readings of the Constitution, you don't violate the appointments clause because these folks are still serving for life. They're just rotating up from the circuit court. They're what's known as riding SCOTUS. I don't know if uh, Lee and Julia, you've heard this term, but back in the day, before you had a very robust infrastructure for the circuit appellate courts, Supreme Court justices would actually ride circuit, which means they'd get on their horses and they'd ride down to the circuit court and they would help out those judges and they'd hear cases and they'd issue rulings and then they'd ride back up to the Supreme Court and hear cases there. And so this would be like appellate court judges would ride SCOTUS, metaphorically, for a fixed period of time and then ride back down and sort of finish out their term as appellate court judges. So I find I find those kinds of appeals that regularize appointments and turn down the heat on judicial nominations uh, the most appealing. 
The other thing I've been thinking about with this nominee, um, just kind of moving this in a slightly different direction away from institutional reform, is about the nominee them- themselves, whoever that will-, will be. So this is not you know, this is kind of the opposite of what you were describing earlier with these really big ideological swings. This is not a big ideological swing. It will be a liberal replaced with a liberal. Um, but what kinds of things might we expect to be different But the kind of known shortlist or the speculated shortlist about who might end up on the court? What might be different given the discussion that's going on around the demographics of this new judge and Biden's promise to appoint a black woman? Um, what kinds of just as there's sort of different judicial philosophies on the on the right, I have to admit I'm like really ignorant about judicial philosophies on the liberal side. You know, are there are there different kinds of judicial philosophies that we might see coming out of the court or discussed in those confirmation hearings that we might want to know about? Julia, that's a great question. And sort of one of the things I've been really interested to see in this nomination, um, and you know, there was a Twitter thread about this very recently pulling in Matt Grossman and Dave Hopkins and their book, Asymmetric Politics. And Lee and I went to grad school with Dave and Matt, and I teach their book in my senior seminar. And I just think it's a great lens for understanding the differences between the political parties. And those differences translate when we talk about the court. So when you heard Trump's nominees, right, even before Trump was elected, he was parading around this list that was approved by the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. And he vowed that if he were elected, he would appoint somebody who was a good originalist, a good conservative legal thinker, and they would have the stamp of approval of the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation, which as we know, is a shorthand for extraordinarily conservative, believing in very, very limited federal power, Um, being on a certain side of the culture wars. So there's wrapped up in that federal society endorsement is a whole host of ideological commitments. And that list that Trump was parading around was enough, we know from exit polls, to get never Trumpers to vote for him. So this emphasis on the ideology of the judge, as you mentioned, what are we seeing now? Joe Biden has said nothing about the kind of ideology he's looking for in a Supreme Court justice to replace Justice Breyer, he has vowed that he will appoint a Black woman to the Supreme Court. He's not the first to play identity politics, quote unquote, right, with the Supreme Court. Ronald Reagan, when he was campaigning, vowed to put up the first woman on the Supreme Court and, of course, selected Sandra Day O'Connor. He made good on that promise. At the same time, I think anyone who's an astute observer of politics knows that Biden is not going to put a very conservative Black woman on the Supreme Court. This person will be a liberal and will have sort of liberal credentials. But unlike in the conservative legal movement, Julia, it's it's not a coincidence that you can't put your finger on a single kind of ideology that the left coheres around because there isn't a single ideology that the left legal network coheres around, which makes it difficult to sort of evaluate a liberal nominee based on their ideology, because there's no real equivalent to originalism, right? We talk about originalism on the right, and that can mean a variety of different things, but there's a general kind of agreed upon sense that you can identify somebody's philosophy on the right, 
that there is a commitment to originalism, and that means a whole host of other commitments that translates into substantive policy commitments as well. And on the left, we talk about, you know, I remember Obama saying that he wanted to nominate a judge with empathy. And the right just excoriated him for that. That's an empty signifier, a judge with empathy. Right? What does that even mean? That's not a legal philosophy. And of course, he nominated Sonia Sotomayor. And she was in her confirmation hearing said that she hoped that a wise Latina with her richness of experience would in many cases come to a better conclusion than a white man, right? So I don't have any answers for you, Julia, but I think what you're honing in on is a distinct difference between what the parties value and who they put on the Supreme Court of the United States. So this is super interesting. And, you know, because I think at one level, you know, we talk about the justices in terms of liberals and conservatives. And, you know, in that sense, we we collapse a lot of this um, potential diversity of, of different types of liberalism, even different types of, of conservatism. So it seems like, I mean, a lot, a lot of your, your book, your, your, your scholarship has been about the conservative legal movement. So ha- has there really been a, a collapsing of what used to be a more diverse and multifaceted tradition of conservative jurisprudence that has kind of just just winnowed down to just a, a very basically off the shelf plug and play approach to cases and and you know is that happening at all on the left i mean there's like the american constitution society and some other you know institutions that have tried to be responses to the federalist society I guess what I'm really asking is, like, talk us through the, the ways in which liberal and conservative judicial organization philosophy approaches have changed, and have they have they really flattened out in both directions or just on the on the right? Yeah, that's a great question, and I don't mean to imply that the federal society as a whole is a monolith, and that there's no disagreement, and that they're just taking marching orders from Leonard Leo. Right, and all ruling the same way. Uh, there's certainly those age-old divides that we talk about within the conservative movement, within the Republican Party. Right, You have libertarians and you have more social or religious conservatives. And of course, we go back to the 1950s and fusionism and William F. Buckley and the National Review. And then the idea was to bring them together, right? libertarian means to conservative ends. And that was the formula. The founders of the Federalist Society, the very first president of the Federal Society who continues to be the Federal Society president is Eugene Meyer. His father was Frank Meyer of the National Review. Right? The founding generation of the Federal Society wanted to take that same formula and apply it to the law. And the tool that they use is originalism. Originalism is a way to fuse libertarians and social conservatives together, but they still have certain distinctions. My second book, Separate But Faithful, examines sort of a subsection of religious conservatives who feel like they don't have a foothold in mainstream law schools, or they don't have a foothold even in the Federalist Society. That the Federalist Society, for all its fusionist efforts, had to sideline or marginalize the more extreme views about 
the biblical foundations of law, right? A Christian worldview understanding of the constitution. So those folks are still kind of operating on the margins. However, those folks also had a foothold in the Trump administration. And so Amy Coney Barrett, I've argued, and I've, I've talked to Margaret Talbot. She has a piece coming out in the New Yorker soon, which examines this. Amy Coney Barrett is sort of this fusionism, bringing some of the more radical elements of kind of religious conservatism and the libertarian elements together. So I think she's someone to watch. And depending on where she goes in certain cases, I think that'll be a, a good metric of, of really how fused together these two parts of the conservative legal movement are. And then just to answer your question about the liberals, the American Constitution Society tries to be the federal society of the left, but the problem is the left has so many institutions, right? The conservatives are right. They by and large still dominate the law schools. They still by and large dominate the American Bar Association. They have a bunch of um, public interest law organizations like the ACLU and NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So when Democrats are looking for their judges, they don't have to go to a single organization, right? When can, Republicans are looking for their judges, they go to the Federalist Society and that acts as a clearinghouse. But they're really, the ACS, the American Constitution Society, just hasn't become that for the left. So I have a question about institutions that takes us in another direction. I'm curious, as you've been researching um, the way that different interest groups and kind of the way that the the different party constituencies shape these nominations, well, you know, the, the one actor who's been relatively, you know, quiet in this story is the presidency. I mean, you mentioned that you thought Biden was especially kind of measured in his reaction to the Coney Barrett situation. But otherwise, the question I have is sort of rooted in my reading of stuff um, like like Sid Milkis and Dan Tishner's work on social movements in the presidency. And this would really suggest that, at least in this one area, that social movements are really like, driving what's happening. And in one area where Trump was maybe not that different from you know, any other potential Republican presidents we might have had. Um, and maybe Biden, not that different from other Democratic presidents. Is the president doing any work here? Have you observed kind of a shift where in like mid 20th century, it was really about the president pick someone that they think has uh, the kind of political or judicial approach that they would like versus this shift into sort of interest group ideological patronage? Have you seen that shift over time? Yeah, that's a great question, Julia. So the one thing I'd point to is the American Bar Association. And it was actually Eisenhower who first brought the American Bar Association in to rank potential candidates, right? So highly qualified, qualified, not qualified. And the idea there was it was a professional move. Can we get legal professionals together to rank this individual? Are they professionally qualified? to be on the bench? Do they have the professional experience, the right temperament? And so the American Bar Association played that role for a very long time. And it wasn't until really the George W. Bush administration that we see an outright rejection of the American Bar Association. George W. Bush comes up and says, I am no longer going to listen to the American Bar Association, in part because he became convinced by folks involved with the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society, that the ABA had a liberal bias and would rank any judicial conservative lower than they would right, a judicial liberal. So they sidelined the American Bar Association 
they called the American Bar Association liberal politicized. And then they start leaning on other interest groups, right? The Heritage Foundation and the Federal Society being the two chief ones. But there's also the Judicial Crisis Network. There's all there's a whole constellation of interest groups on the right that kind of work together to try to identify judicial nominees. So to answer your question, for a long time, it was just about who was qualified. Senators were consulted, right? The blue slip for judicial nominees, right? Give me your sense of this person who's from your state. Yay or nay? What are you hearing in your state from your local bar association about this judge? And then when the shift to privileging ideology over just professional qualification happens, I think that's when you start to invite more interest group involvement. But it's a really fascinating story, and it it happens right over the course of the 20th century. Wow, that's fascinating. I did not know that, although I guess in retrospect, it makes sense. So anyway, I, I think we're, we're about out of time now. So we'll just wrap quickly and, and I'll kind of just re- reflect a little bit on this conversation briefly. I mean, it just strikes me how how different this era of Supreme Court activity and, and politics and ideology and is from previous eras. I mean, there are certainly some some similarities, but it just seems like we are on this incredibly unsustainable trajectory. And I don't know how it breaks, but you know, I think you you put it nicely, Amanda, that you know something has to change. Things can't go on how they are, and that's where we are. And any concluding thoughts, Julia, Amanda? I had a concluding thought, and then my cat came in and started bleeding into the microphone like a like a lamb, and I lost it. I'm sorry. Mm, meow. <laughs> meow. Now, and, and I'll just wrap by saying that there's a lot going on here, but it's important not to think about the court as separate from politics. And if I could drive home one insight, it's that our courts are a reflection and a product of our politics. So all of the same trends that we see that are in many ways damaging our politics are also damaging our courts. And and I think when we think of solutions, we can't think of them as court specific, but we have to acknowledge the fact that these judges are also kind of products of their political environment. All right. Well, that's a great note to wrap on. So thank you, Amanda, for being our special guest. This has been another episode of your favorite podcast and ours, Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.